Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Annie Brewster, talking about her book, The Healing Power of Storytelling. When, where, and how to deploy stories for healing and for the healer. Here in conversation with me today is the one and only Annie Brewster. Annie, I'm delighted to be spending time with you again. Thank you so much for being so generous. I know you spoke to us previously, and it's an honor to have you back on the show. I'm so excited to be back because I love conversing with you. We want to spend some time today talking about your book, The Healing Power of Storytelling, which I was honored to read recently. And I want to explore some of the ideas that you've put in this book. But let's start from scratch and say, you are really convinced that storytelling helps people to heal. Why do you think that is? I think the primary reason is because I experienced it firsthand as a patient. And really, I think the key point was me getting a diagnosis that I never expected to get, which was multiple sclerosis, a chronic illness with no cure. And it sort of threw me into a identity crisis of sorts because I had had, I was relatively young at the time. I was in in the midst of my training to become a doctor. And I had sort of lived by this theory of I work hard, I will get what I want, I can power my way through anything, perseverance, perseverance, perseverance. And then this sort of shattered that. And I had never really thought about what that meant as a doctor until I experienced it as a patient. And, and it really showed me that it was an, a crisis of identity. And so stories really helped me personally to come to terms with that, to integrate it into my sense of self. And it took a long time. But telling my own stories and hearing stories from others led me to this work is the short version. And then just doing this work has convinced me more than ever that there is power in creating time and space for stories. What do you see as the essential elements of a story? We know that there's a beginning, a middle and an end. That's the that's the naughty version. There is a deeper construct to the story. What is your formulation of that? So I'm I'm very lucky that I work closely with a research colleague, Jonathan Adler. He's a PhD in identity psychology, narrative psychology, and his whole field of research is on the health benefits of narrative. So I've learned a lot from him and sort of the structure of that research suggests that sort of there's this concept of narrative identity, that who we are sort of shaped by the stories we tell, right? And that it's these big turning point moments, high points, low points, turning points that sort of scaffold her identity, our identity. And so the way I think of a story and the way we help people craft their stories around illness and trauma is as turning point stories. And I know there's not always like a dramatic turning point if someone was born with an illness, for instance, but there often is. And even if there's not that dramatic moment of diagnosis, there are high points, low points, turning points within all stories. And so we structure them that way usually, like who were you before this moment? What was that turning point moment? What happened 
what transpired in a very concrete and very sensual way. Like, what did you feel? What did you see? What did you smell? Bring us there with you. And then who are you after and what transpired and and what are you carrying forward? And for me, that's really about integration of sort of these things that happen to us in our lives that we can't necessarily control, but they do happen. And how do we then incorporate them into our sense of self? So I'd say the short version is we think of them as turning point stories. And we structure it around that. You're extremely generous in the first part of your book because you tell some very personal stories about your relationship with your father and your journey into medicine. Many of the things that we don't like to disclose about ourselves as doctors because we we want patients to see us as being totally in control of every aspect of all of our lives, which of course is not true. Teenage angst and all of that happens to everyone, including doctors. So if I were to share mine with you, you've been so generous. Let me say to you, you know, here I was, I came from Africa, I was born in Africa, I came to the Republic of Ireland at the age of 11, went through a pretty awful experience through the immigration system, ended up within six years of that in medical school. So at the age of 16 or 17, there I was in medical school. Wow. And for me, that was a difficult time. And of course, the training through medical school, a difficult time. Somebody listening to that story would say, you are constructing your past from that story. You are telling that story in a way that creates a persona that you then want to work with. Somebody else might say, well, you are extraordinarily lucky to have come to that place, to have that opportunity, and you should thrive in that circumstance. And I would say, actually, it was a very difficult time. So my, pers- my point of view is different from somebody else's point of view who may have experienced a very similar event. How do you square that circle? Are you saying like many people may have had a similar experience but might perceive of it differently and tell different stories about it? Or are you saying that somebody might tell a different story about your experience looking in? No, I'm thinking that somebody who had experienced the same thing would see it in a very different way. So I saw this in a very different way and it made me the doctor that I am. Others might see that as you are justifying this post-event justification for your story. You're telling the story as if this had created you, when in fact it was in you all the time. You're just telling a story to create this persona. The truth is something quite different, and the truth is depends on who is experiencing at the time. To me, that's where the power lies, that we are all... The as my colleague, my research colleague, Jonathan Adler would say, we're both the narrators and the main characters in our story. But the fact that we are the narrators gives us some control over that. Not that they can be totally fantasy. They have to be based in our reality to be psychologically productive. But we are all crafting stories like the whole if you look at the research on memory, it's never it's never exact. We, we're actually quite poor at remembering exactly what happens. And there's always a recreation that happens. And there's power in that, that we have 
we can't control what happens to us, but that we can control how we make sense of what happens to us, what we choose to remember, how we choose to tell it, and what the meaning is that we make from that. And so that is ours and ours alone. And for me, that is where the power is in this whole process. And I know that's confusing in a way to say that like our memories aren't at all accurate and well, what John Adler would say is that memory is actually adaptive, like evolutionarily, because it gives it's not exact. But our the purpose of memory is not to help us remember exactly and recreate exactly what happened. It's to help us predict the future. And in doing that, if we can create different, more different scenarios and 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 create new stories, that gives us more to choose from and how we respond to the future. But it has to be. One of the themes that we know in the research that is connected to positive mental health and how we tell our stories is coherence, right? And part of that is it has to be true and convincing to us and to others who are listening and grounded in psychological reality. And we have to be able to do some psychological analysis of it, of why this is meaningful to us. So it can't be out of left field. But I always go back to Viktor Frankl, who says, like, we can't, whatever his exact quote was, but we can't control what happens to us, but we can control the meaning we make. And that is always in our control. And for me, that's where the power is. So everyone is going to interpret their stories differently. But when we're given a horrible diagnosis, for me, it was coming to that recognition and that realization that I had some control of how how I was going to incorporate this, how I was going to make use of this. Not that I would want it or invite this diagnosis upon myself, but now that it's here, what can I learn from it? What's What meaning can I make from it? And how can I actually use this to be of service to others? The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. So if we go back to where your inspiration comes from for this story. He's saying that where you start from is the point where you've got this uncomfortable feeling inside you and you're looking for the source of that feeling. And you have this memory. It doesn't have to be exact, but it's a memory that's, as far as you're concerned, is the reality. So you bring that into the fore and you work with it. Is that what a story is all about? Absolutely. Yes. That's what, uh, that is my understanding of what a story is. We take what has happened, what our memory is, and we craft a story around it. And it's not static ever. It's always evolving and changing because everything that happens to us is going to change how we perceive of that, that past moment. So I think the research, I'm trying to remember John Adler's exact words, but it's a narrative identity it's always in a given moment, sort of our perceived present, our imagined future, and our remembered past. And that is always evolving and in flux. And there's stability to it, of course, but it's, but it's not static. And for me, that's also powerful, that, that we can reevaluate our stories as we move forward. In your book, The Healing Power of Storytelling, you say that it's really important to tell your story. It's important that you have an audience for that story. Say something about that. It's not essential that you have an audience. And I do think I say that, like, you might feel 
you want to go through this process of following the prompts that we outline in the book, and you may not want to share it. And that's okay. And that's still valuable. I think still engaging with our stories deeply is really powerful. I think the the value of having inviting others in is that, well, one, if you invite someone in to sort of help you in this sort of editing process as you're crafting it, that can help push you. And that's sort of what we do in our work at Health Story Collaborative is nudge people towards developing the themes that we know to be good for us as we tell our stories. Of course, remembering always that it's an individual story. It has to be authentic. It has to be their story. But can we push deeper? Can we probe and ask questions that might help evolve further themes? And so I think that is valuable if you have someone who can play that role for you. And then I think there's a whole nother element of standing up for an audience. And of course, it has to be the right audience, right? Because there are, I mean, we've done them in all, we've shared stories at Health Story Collaborative in all sorts of settings, private homes, hospitals, publicly, on the media, and they're all different. So of course, if you throw a story out there in the media, it's always more vulnerable versus doing it with people you know that you've invited and they're supportive guests. So there are differences, but I think when you're first sharing, it is important to have a supportive audience because it's vulnerable and you're putting something out there. I do recommend thinking carefully about, are you ready to put it out there? I know from personal experience, you put things out there in the media, and even if they're like 99% positive comments, that one really nasty one that's like aimed at you and your personal story can be really painful. So you have to think that through. But so I do think having a generally supportive audience at the beginning is important. And I think that's very easy to do because we often have people invite their family and their friends and invite a guest. Or even if we do it publicly, it attracts people that want to listen to these stories and very respectful audience for the most part. And I think there's really something powerful in standing up and being witnessed and sharing your story and then opening it up to a dialogue and a communication. And, you know, since COVID, we haven't been able to do a lot live, but in the past we have, and hopefully we'll get back to that soon. But there's something really magical that happens in a room when someone is sharing a very vulnerable story. And then it sort of creates an opening for everyone in that room to be more vulnerable and open themselves. And it's an invitation and it, and it creates something very real. And I always talk about stories as relational so that we're impacting each other in our stories. So how the audience responds to that storyteller is going to change that story going forward, even if just a tiny bit, it will change it. And how the story impacts the audience will change every audience member in their own stories and what they carry forward. So we're interacting with each other in this very intimate and powerful way. And I think stories creating a space, like intentionally creating a space for that is really my my main goal is intentionally creating that space because I don't think we get much of that in this day and age. And and that's magic can happen when you when you create that space. And I don't take any credit for that. It is magic that happens. It is magic that happens. One of the things that concerns me about the idea of telling the story and uh, I'm not decrying that as having a huge value is that somehow it might undermine your resilience and your resourcefulness that you tell the story of be becoming a victim in a particular situation. And by telling the story, you reinforce that narrative in your own mind. And as we both say, the truth may be quite different from 
subtly different from how you have experienced it or how you are now telling it. So is there a danger that you become caught up in constantly retelling the story of becoming a victim and then taking on that persona? Yeah. I always shy away from the word victim, although I just did write an article that I use that word a lot because it was about, you know, victims of the opioid epidemic. And that word is used a lot. But I I generally think I don't like that word. But I, I think, yes, there is a risk and there is a lot of thought we give to is something going to be re-traumatizing if you engage with something that's too fresh or too raw or too unprocessed and it's painful, or if you do it in a, in a way that's unguided or in an environment that's not contained, it can be dangerous, right? So we work very closely with people. Would I send someone out there to work with that person who's not sort of trained carefully or has some knowledge of sort of how to contain these things? No, because I do think it's really vulnerable and there is danger in that. I also think someone has to be really ready to share and if it's too close to a traumatic event and they're too raw and vulnerable in it, then it, it might be unhealthy. But I think even in those scenarios, when I've worked with people, I think the key is to say, we can go through this process of you working with me. And if you at any point decide that this doesn't feel right, or you don't want to share this further, or you want to stop, that's fine. And I think giving people that power back to be in charge of sort of completely in charge, period, that's critical. And so that's where I've had tension working with the media in the past, because I used to work for the public radio station some and be sharing, doing story sharing through them. And they would want something different, like maybe more like dramatic flair and let's capture the audience. And, and I would be always in defense of like the patient safe space. And forever, that will be my take and where I come from. And I will do that. Uh, and I would push back on the media. And, and so I think that is the critical thing. The patient or whoever, patient, person, storyteller, whoever it is, needs to be in control. And I think if they're in control, then I don't think there's much danger of having it be re-traumatizing because then they can say at any point, this is too hard, or I don't want to talk about this. Or whoever's helping in, in the process needs to have enough intuitive sense to know where to go, where not to go, how to contain it at the end, how to not leave someone out on a ledge. You know, so there are ways that it has to be done in, a, in an ethical and safe space for sure. But I think if you can get through that, it's so empowering. There are many, many cultures where storytelling is part of the healing process. I'm thinking here in Australia, there's very much that in the indigenous communities where people sat around the fireplace and told a story and worked through some difficult issues, whether that be emotional issues or whether they be issues around conflict or issues around loss. In society as we now have it, the storytelling around the fireplace takes place almost in a global setting. This is a global fireplace where we all sit around and we go on Facebook and we tell our stories or we go into other social media outlets that can sometimes come unstuck, particularly in days when people say, oh, you do know that your employer is going to be screening you every time you apply for a job and they will now know all of these awful things about you from the past. So the question is, 
where is that safe space? Do we create those safe spaces? Is there room for that in the world that we now inhabit? Well, I would push back, first of all, on the social media thing and to say that I don't think that social media really provides a forum for authentic storytelling, right? It's very curtailed. It's very short. And there is definitely this pressure that everyone needs to look like, my life is so wonderful. And here's my little soundbite or whatever you call it. My little, you know, here I am. I uh, Everything's perfect. And that's actually counterproductive, I think. So I don't think social media really does that for us. And I think, in fact, we are more hungry than ever for authentic storytelling because of social media, because we're seeing just these little clips that are truncated. And so I think we need to work harder. And I don't think there are enough spaces in our culture today, at least in North America, for authentic storytelling. And there are definitely movements in that direction, like StoryCorps, for instance, and the Moth Radio Hour. And, you know, so there are things and, and the work we're trying to do. But I think we need to all who are dedicated to that work intentionally create spaces. And I think in healthcare, I have found that we have to fight very hard to create those spaces. And the healthcare system's not going to pay for it. <laughs> I've also learned that, right? So it's too bad. But we need more of that in healthcare. And social media is not authentic storytelling. No. Yes, I agree. And I think that the, the danger, of course, is that people get enthused about the storytelling and then they have a bad experience because something awful happens given the world that we live in. I want to now pivot a little bit to the doctors because doctors often have issues that they have to work through if they are to become healers. Mm-hmm. And you've been very vulnerable and open about your story. And I was just saying to you before we started, the wonderful book by Adam Kay called This Is Going To Hurt, in which he talks about his diaries, stories that he collects over the course of his training uh, as a junior doctor, which are sometimes harrowing. Sometimes it would be very difficult for a doctor to tell that story now without getting into a lot of trouble. I suspect that he's done an awful lot to protect patients by changing significant details. But there are things that he says that he did or that he was feeling that patients would find very difficult to accept from somebody they regard as anything less than perfect and not vulnerable. He, he is very vulnerable. In fact, he may well end up changing the way an entire health system treats its doctors, which would be a fantastic outcome. However, how do we as clinicians find that space to tell our stories? How do we find that space to heal? The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. I really, really in my heart believe that it's powerful for doctors to share that vulnerability, that we need to share that vulnerability. And I say that as a patient, right? So I have been on the patient side and I think that we're over boundary. Of course, we need to have boundaries. Like I don't want to go to my doctor and have to hear about his divorce or her divorce. You know, there's internal struggles that I have nothing to do with. But I love a doctor who says to me, 
yeah, I have a kid who had that same struggle, or I have been through that too, or human. And to be a little bit vulnerable, it makes me trust that doctor more. And I think sort of related to that, I feel like doctors were trained to never say, like, I don't know. I don't know. And actually, I like a doctor who says, I don't know. I'm going to go look that up. Same. I like a doctor who's not perfect, who's a human being. But I know there's a huge taboo against that. So I think we need to work around that and try and challenge that a little bit in medicine that, like, I think it's dangerous for, for doctors, too, to be holding up this we're supposed to be perfect and because that's where the burnout and the danger and the high suicide rates and all of that comes in because we aren't we're human beings and we're fallible and of course the whole lit litigation and that whole legal system gets murky in there too because we're supposed to be perfect in that regard you know it's complicated but I do think I really believe in my heart that if we're like we have to be aware of boundaries and not wanting to burden our patients, of course. But I think if we can be human, I really believe, and if we make a mistake, and research supports this, if we say, I'm sorry, actually, the chance of a lawsuit is going to be much less. Like, I think to be human is actually really important. But I do think it's taboo. So one of the programs we do at Health Story Collaborative is it's called healing story sessions where we have two storytellers at a given event, but we have one model where we have a patient and a provider share together and we work with each. So they're in a pre-existing therapeutic relationship. Often we'll start with the doctor and say, do you have a patient who might want to share alongside you? And they have different narrative guides that they work through. They each work separately on their stories, of course, in a context of knowing that they're doing this together. And then at the event, they stand up and they share their stories. And then they've never heard each other's stories before, and they have a moment to interact together and reflect on each other's stories. And it's really powerful. And then they carry that forward into their relationship. So, for instance, once we did it, and it was a doctor I know named David Barron and his patient Tracy, who's who had diabetes, and we did it in the context of his diabetes support group. So a lot of the audience members were his patients. And they just really valued hearing about his life journey because some of the questions are sort of what drew you to this work and what was your childhood like and who are you as a person? And it was really meaningful. And I think it really enhanced their trust in him. And we've also done it for just all doctor audiences. And we've had patient share and the provider share. And, you know, there are people always that are a little uncomfortable with it, the doctors who are like, but usually it's like, again, like 99% of people are totally into it. And maybe a few, 1% or 2% are uncomfortable, but that's how we're trained to be uncomfortable with don't reveal anything personal. But I, you know, I think it's done in a very contained, safe space. We see all the drafts beforehand. We're not going to let anything outrageous come out. And it's so powerful. And for me, that is the healing that needs to happen between patient and provider. Because patients aren't happy and doctors aren't happy often. I mean, often they are, but the system really... I think can polarize us and make us feel like we're in an antagonistic dynamic, even though we're supposed to be in a therapeutic one. And to actually highlight the humanity of, bo of both parties, I think is really powerful. Because I think oftentimes the providers are doing their best, but the patients can feel like they're getting cheated because they're not getting enough time and they're not feeling seen and heard and listened to. And the system is just working against everybody, I think. So I think creating that space for a little bit of boundary violation, but in a contained and thoughtful, safe way, 
I'm into that. I, that excites me. And I know it's like pushing the bound, pushing the limit a little of sort of what's acceptable in medicine. But I think in a, in a direction we need to go, like we're all human beings. And yes, as a doctor, I will own my job is to tell you what I've learned and my, share my expertise and give you some guidance. And I want a doctor myself who's going to tell me what to do. And then I want to be able to say, I'm going to do that or I'm not going to do that and then have a dialogue. So yeah, I want, it is our job to be in that role, but I also think we can be human beings at the same time. I don't think anyone can argue with that. We do need to be human because at the end of the day, we need to see another human when we are in distress. I mean, this has been shown time and again. This is how the medicine man, the medicine person has been crafted into our social fabric. This is what we like. In the last two years in particular, we've seen doctors go through a very difficult time because of the demands of the pandemic and the demands of looking after themselves and in fact becoming sick themselves as a consequence of being exposed to this virus. Have you seen more doctors coming forward to tell their stories if only to survive the rigors of what life is like now? I wish I could say yes. I think... There hasn't, we've been, I mean, I've been, my whole clinic got taken over in the beginning. I worked in urgent care and it became the COVID clinic of my hospital. So for two years, that's all I've been doing is COVID, COVID, COVID. Do we, did we have time and space to like even step back and reflect? Often not because it was hitting us so hard, but there have been some initiatives in the hospital trying to do that. Like we did an event last year for nurses at MGH, Mass General, where I work in Boston, where I'd been asked for Nurses Week to work with some of the nurses telling COVID stories and finding a patient to partner with them telling COVID stories. And that was really powerful. And so we're doing it again this year, not so much focused on COVID, but I think it was really powerful to hear their COVID stories because it was very traumatizing for everybody, providers and patients, in what went down in the healthcare system. And it's been sort of this surreal time. So I think those stories are continuing to evolve and will continue to come out. And I think we need to make time and space. And I just spoke to someone last week about trying to engage in another project with patients in one of the underserved communities that we serve to try and make room for those stories to come out. So it's for providers and patients and which stories are we making space for? And we have to be really clear on that. And providers don't often have that space to tell their stories. So we need to make time space for that. Sure. Hani Brewster, your book, The Healing Power of Storytelling, has been a fantastic contribution to this narrative that we now have around the power of healing. You're quite right. This is the very essence of healing and becoming good healers. I've loved reading it. I've, I've really enjoyed your stories. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself because in sharing so much of yourself, You've created the space for us all to think more openly about it. Thank you. Well, thank you for saying that, Moyes. I, I, my main goal is just to create that space. That's all I want to do. If I do nothing else, just to make people recognize that it's important and valuable to make that space to share stories, to listen to stories, to engage as human beings, and especially in the context of healing from illness and trauma and loss. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at 
journalofhealthdesign.com. Journal of Health Design.